You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. All right, what's good to see you this morning? We're going to be turning in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, it's good to see you here this morning. It's good to see you. Dwayne is visiting his family back in Newfoundland and uh, made the trek a long way away and uh, is enjoying some time. His dad will be turning 91. His mom is 88. And so it's just an awesome opportunity for him to get to enjoy some much-needed time with them as they're transitioning in their life stages. How many of you are filled with the joy of your salvation? The joy of your salvation. We were singing, Christ, my all in all, the joy of my salvation. There was just something that just kind of welled up inside of me as I thought about that. And I thought about this passage that we're going to be reading and examining today. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read most of this, but invite you to read other sections with me. I won't make you read all 17 verses. Anybody give me a hallelujah? Amen. All right, all right, let's read together. Um, I'll start, and then I'll invite you to read. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and for righteousness, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Now read with me here, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now listen to him as he explains his depth of desire, this joy of his salvation. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. I press on to take hold of that which for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Would you read with me here? Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together, Lord, to join together as brothers and sisters. Lord, to pattern our lives after the example of Jesus who laid his life down. Lord, to come into the company and the gathering, this team, this SEC family, and receive encouragement so that we can, we can have the strength, we can have the motivation and the desire, Lord, to press on in our spiritual walk. Lord, I pray that the words I speak today would reflect your heart, Lord, a heart that extends love and grace to all. Lord, that, a, a love that will seek out and rescue all who are lost. It's not willing to leave any of us in our, in our place of sin or self-deception. But, Lord, that you desire for all to come to repentance and, save, and a saving knowledge of your truth. Lord, let your truth be applied to our lives today. Lord, let us receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. We've been looking at the summit for the past several weeks, and this concludes our series before we head into a study of the book of Galatians next week. And as we've been looking at this series of the summit, we spent some time talking about the importance of team in week one. And then we spent some time talking about what do we need to have in our backpacks? What's important for us to pack in and take out so that we can be prepared for the climb? And then last week was an awesome week because what happened? Summit day. Yeah, we reached the summit last week. But there is still one more week. Why? Wasn't summit the whole goal of this We got to come down. Thank you. (laughs) We got to come down off this mountain, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The summit for many is the prize to be able to get up there and see the views and have that measure of success. For some people, that's enough. I reached it once. I'm glad I got there. It was awesome. I've got views and stories to tell you about. But the reality is the summit is only half of the journey. It's only the halfway point. It may motivate us to climb, but there are some things we need to pay attention to as we're coming back down off of the summit, and maybe some things we need to consider as we're thinking about returning to the summit or some other summit. And really quickly, I want to look at the transfiguration of Christ. This seems like a little departure, but I want to use this as an illustration for what we're talking about. And it's written about in each of the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's found the reading I'm going to read to you today is from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. The disciples had an experience with Jesus, and let's look at their response. Matthew 17, verse 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. They've reached the summit. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. (laughs) While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, and don't be afraid. And when they looked, they saw no one except Jesus. And verse 9 says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them. So just to summarize what happens, Jesus invites a few of his closest friends up into this amazing experience. They're going to get to see something and experience something of Jesus that they have never seen or experienced or maybe even heard about before. So they make the trek up the mountain, says it's a high mountain, Is it Kilimanjaro High? I have no idea. Is it Everest High? Is it, uh, you know, (laughs) I don't know how high the mountain was. It just says it was high. So they made it up to this high mountain, and there they experience something with the Lord that just blows their mind, something they can't even comprehend. And while they're there, not only do they see Jesus transfigured before their very eyes, but they also see Moses and Elijah. Now, for a couple of Hebrew good Jewish boys, I mean, what could be better than seeing Moses and Elijah up here with Jesus? I mean, can you imagine what they must be feeling as they experience that? So I think Peter's response is a pretty normal one. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Like, where else would you want to be in that experience except seeing Jesus transfigured and seeing Moses and Elijah with it? I mean, why would you want to leave? Why would you want to leave that experience? Can't we just stay here? We can even build shelters here. One for you, one for him, one for him. It'll be great. But Jesus says, get up. Gives them some instructions. Don't be afraid. We're going back down the mountain. We're going back down the mountain. Why? Because there's work to do. There's stuff that needs to be done. See, we cannot live on the summit. We can enjoy and experience the freedom, the grace, the mercy, the outpouring of love of God over our lives, but it's not meant for us to just hoard like these experience collectors. It's not enough for us to do it. See, we can't live on the summit because there's no food there. There's no water at the summit. In fact, some of it might freeze if you're up high enough. There's, there's little air. The air is thinner. You were not designed, you were not created to live and maintain 
life at summit level all the time. Those are all things you need to survive. When Dwayne was climbing Kilimanjaro, they took four or five days of climbing, switchbacks, going up a little higher, coming back down to sleep at night, going four or five days to get up to the summit. How long did he have at the summit? Anybody have a guess? 10 to 15 minutes. 10 to 15 minutes, four or five days of preparation, trekking, all of that for 10 to 15 minutes of a view. Why can't he stay longer? Because your body is not designed to live and be able to sustain at that. They had to start coming back down the mountain. They could not live at that level. Four to five days for 10 to 15 minutes of experience, and then they've got to get back down the mountain. There's also no shelter there. Now, we have architects and developers and scientists here, and if they were coming together to say, let's plan a beautiful area for us to build a community, they're going to plan a community. And, they, and of course, the view would be pretty captivating at that level. You would say, man, who wouldn't pay for that view? Who wouldn't want to live and get to see that view every day when they wake up? But when you consider the realities of a situation in a place like that, no air, no water, no food, probably not even a lot of building materials. Well, you have air, but thin air. (laughs) Thin air, no, no food, no water, little to build with. I think we'd be foolish to say that's a great place to build and plan a community. Would you agree? That's going to be hard. So when you go up to the mountaintop with Jesus and you experience the fullness of his love in your life, when you awaken to the reality of who he is and you experience him, there's a danger in saying, that's enough. I'll just live here. But we can't live there. We've got to come back down. The most dangerous segment of the climb is on the way down. And I came across an article that was uh, released last year in the Telegraph, and it was called Climbing a Mountain, The Real Danger Starts When You Get to the Top. And here's what a study shows. Summiting a mountain may sound like the daunting prospect, but the real danger lies in coming back down again. While hikers may feel they have conquered the hardest part after reaching the peak, in fact, 75% of falls occur on the road home. 75%. A mix of loose gravel, Uneven ground, exhaustion, and the physical exertion of walking downhill all combine to make the descent a a far more treacherous journey than the climb. And is it things like, I fell into a crevasse, I lost my way, I had a cardiovascular incident? No. What the studies found is that slipping, followed by twisting one's ankle and stumbling, are the most frequent causes of injuries. Out of that 75%, most of it's just, I twisted my ankle on the way down. I didn't get lost in the woods or anything else. And even more interestingly, analyses also showed that most falls occur not in snow fields, not in backcountry, but on marked paths, Marked paths, where all of these things are happening with loose gravel or on stony ground. Only 6% of them happen in those places where you would expect some sort of dangerous situation to, to exist. Now, why is that? I'm on a marked path coming home. I've just done all of that. We let our guards down. We expend all of our energy trying to reach the summit. And that's and the reality is we've got to exercise some caution on the way back down. If we give everything we have to get the experience and then we have nothing left to make the descent back down, then that's a foolish use of our energy and our water and our resources. We've got to make it up to the summit, but then we've got to have the presence of mind and the focus and the determination to make it safely back down the mountain. We cannot underestimate. That's why Paul said in verse 1, It's no trouble for me to write these things to you because it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard. Watch out. Watch out. And he said, I put no confidence in my flesh. I put no confidence. In fact, when the disciples came back from the Mount of Transfiguration, the first thing they encountered was a demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't drive out the demon. Had they not just experienced God? Had they not just had a revelation of Jesus? And yet they couldn't do it. The experiences that we have are not the same as the grounding experiences that come in the disciplines of prayer, of fasting, reading the word, studying. We can't become careless. And so Paul says, don't put confidence in the flesh. 
Don't put confidence, even if you think you've reached that, even if you're the Hebrew of Hebrews, even if you're the most zealous, even if you're, doesn't matter, don't put any confidence in it because there's a return trip and you've got to have the presence of mind. So that brings us to the second point, and that's the return journey. So we make it back down the mountain. Is that it? Is that all there is? What's next? Wasn't the summit good enough? Wasn't that enough of an experience? The return journey is what Paul focuses on in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 12, when, he's ta- when he says that whatever were gains to me, whatever successes, experiences, awesome things I experienced of God in the past, whatever things I consider to be gain, those spiritual markers of excellence in my life, I'm now considering them complete garbage compared with knowing Christ my Lord. There's a surpassingly great thing that is being offered to us when we consider that. And he said, some of these things were my gains, the gains and the garbage. Listen to what he says in verses 7 through 12. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I've given it all up. I've lost it all that I may gain Christ. You see that contrast? Everything that, that I thought was okay, everything that I would have considered a spiritual marker, I now cast down and consider it worthless because I still want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. There's more to have of him. And I want to be found in him. In verse 10, I want to know him. I want to know him, not just know about him, It's a difference between having an intellectual assent to the things of God. I understand, I know, I agree, I believe, versus I know my Savior. The intimacy of a relationship that you are invited into. I'm invited into that kind of relationship with God. Now, two things happen on this return journey for most of us, either in the return or even in the desire to make another summit like to try again, to keep going, to press on in my, in my walk with the Lord. And one of them is spiritual apathy. And the second one is the wall. And I want to talk about the difference because you reach roadblocks or places in your, in your spiritual life when you're like, I don't know if I want to keep going. I don't know if there's a reason why I want to press on. And you need to have something that, that fuels that motivation to keep going. And so let's talk a little bit about apathy and acedia. Acedia is a word that we talked a little bit about in our Burgers and Books Bible study group over the summer, and it comes from the book that I mentioned in here from Alan Fadling, An Unhurried Life. And it's a word that you don't hear very often, but it's a really important thing and something we need to safeguard, one of those cautionary areas that we need to guard against in our spiritual lives. Apathy is indifference. I just don't feel, I don't care I'm, I don't really, I'm content with where I am. I'm not particularly motivated to do something else, to do something different. I'm just, eh, I don't really feel anything. I'm indifferent. Acedia means not to care. It's two words that are combined together. I mean, not to care. And Dr. Alan Fadling said in this book that I mentioned, acedia is ultimately a failure to love. It's a place of apathy toward life, and a kind of spiritual boredom. It's that umpteenth lap between, somewhere between the enthusiasm of the starting line and the celebration of the finish line. It's when we're tempted to give in, to give up, or distract ourselves. Anything but here and now. It's a kind of soul weariness in the midst of our journey, a loss of holy desire that would energize the practices by which we make open space and unhurried time in our life so that we notice the real presence of God. We behave too often as though God either isn't present or is so distant that his presence is irrelevant. A spiritual malaise, acedia, causes us to find spiritual disciplines boring, not worth our time, and it's a loss of a more eternal perspective. We forget that we're living the eternal life now. So when you're finding yourself in that place of just, I don't know if I really want to do it, or the disciplines are just kind of boring, the descriptions that he listed, spiritual boredom, apathy toward life. I just want to give in, give up, or distract myself. Anything but doing what I need to do right now. When I'm feeling like God's distant, 
and, or that his presence is just not really relevant to my life. Those are some warning signs that maybe there's a spiritual issue that we need to take responsibility for. There's something in our hearts we need to take to the Father and say, God, please help me in this area of my life because I don't feel. I'm not sensing your presence, and I know the problem is with me. I know it's a problem of my heart, my issue. God, please help me. That's one possibility of what we can experience in our journey. But the second possibility is you're coming along a place and you hit something that looks like this. The wall. The wall. This is a different place than being apathetic or just not caring about your spiritual life. This is a real and necessary part of your spiritual journey. And I would like to suggest that in his love, God may lead you to that location. It's like when you're coming along a pathway and you're in the, in, in the, in the woods and, you know, like this morning, when you, if you woke up early enough, we were pretty socked in by fog, right? Anybody see that? It was very foggy. You don't have visibility when you're in the fog. But even if you know you're going along the right path, I know I'm driving down 185th going to church. I know I'm going down the right street. I know I'm going to the right location. But I'm just driving through the fog. And when I saw the sun break through, what happens when the sun breaks through? You gain visibility. And it burns off the fog. And suddenly you feel the warmth and the light and it just feels good. But what if the fog burns off and that's what you see? What if you know you're in the right path, you know you're following the right leader, you know that you're in the right place, the right time, doing the right things, but you're still at the wall? That's something that I think many of us have either experienced, and if you haven't yet experienced it, you will. And I want to say it's normal and it's necessary. It's a normal, necessary part of our life. And so I want to talk about that for just a couple of minutes. There are stages in our, in our spiritual growth that we all have to walk through. And there are about six different stages that we walk through as we're kind of walking in that path of transformation in our spiritual lives. And when we first set out and meet the Savior... We have such excitement. God has saved me. God has rescued me. God has done this amazing work in my life, and we're just in awe of who God is. We recognize him. We want to be with him. We believe. We have, we have crossed over from death into life, and I love God. I love him. And then we walk with God for a while, and we begin to discover a life of discipleship. When we start gathering with other people, and our, and our relationship with the Lord begins to be challenged, we recognize all that God has done for us, and we find that sense of belonging. And we begin to become secure in our faith. That's the life of discipleship that we would find in stage two, where we're learning about God, we're growing in God. Stage three comes when we begin to sense that, hey, God has designed me, created me for a unique purpose, and I begin to learn, hey, I'm gifted. God has things for me to do, and I want to be about it. And out of love for God and love for others, I begin to serve. Doesn't that sound kind of like a mission statement for a lot of churches? You know, love God, love others, serve. Love God, love others, serve. Love God, love others, serve. And those are all important stages of the spiritual growth. But after a while of doing that, it begins to feel like, Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. Day in and day out, day out, day in, day out. I wash my hair every day, do the same thing over and over. Anybody ever felt like that? Like in their spiritual life? When you get to, you reach this point of either a personal crisis or a spiritual crisis when you're saying, God, there has to be something more than this. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired. You know, yes, I'm faithfully and dutifully getting up on a Sunday morning and making sure that I've got myself here at church or my family at church or I'm in a group or, you know what, I've discovered my gifts and I'm serving somewhere, but is there more than this? And you reach the wall. I'm going to go back to that picture. You reach the wall. And God in his love leads you there. This is when there is a dismantling of all the things that we thought were certain. When we experience that faith or personal crisis, when maybe we feel abandoned by God, we feel abandoned by others, and we're wondering where we are on the map. God, I can't even find where I am on this map, but I'm pretty sure I'm lost. I'm pretty sure I'm lost. And you begin to look, but things just aren't working anymore like they used to. 
and it's so uncomfortable. It hurts. It's a, it's a spiritual point of pain. I want to read to you a little bit about, about the wall. The wall represents the place where another layer of transformation occurs and a renewed life of faith begins for all those who feel called and have the courage to move into it. The wall represents our will meeting God's will face-to-face. It's our will meeting God's will face-to-face. We decide anew whether we are willing to surrender and let God direct our lives. Although we deeply desire to give our will over to God and even believe we are doing so, in truth, we are trying to deal with the wall in the same way we've gotten through life, on the strength of our own will or gifts. We try everything we can to scale it, circumvent it, burrow under it, leap over it, or simply ignore it. There's no wall there. I'm an overcomer, praise Jesus. There is no wall. But the wall remains. What exactly is the wall experience? The, uh, the wall experience is a time, and I, w- I want to say there's, a, there's an invitation in the wall to know that God is there working, and there's a deep sense that, hey, God is working in my life. I don't understand what's going on, but there is a deep sense of awe, and there's a mystery that goes along with that because you're on holy ground. But it's a sense of dying to self and waiting for that rebirth in the Spirit when your spirit can come alive again, when you can slough off the old and begin to experience him anew. Our experience of God at the wall takes on a different nuances based on our different personal needs for healing and renewal. Thus, the wall differs for everyone. Fundamentally, it has to do with the slow breaking through the barriers we have built between our will and God in our lives. We've spent our own energy. We've come to the end of our ropes We are ready to learn about freedom, the liberty of living without grasping, and in a more profound sense than ever before, we have to let God be God and let him direct our lives. At the same time, we surrender our wills to be healed spiritually, we simultaneously begin to be healed psychologically. The wall experience is the place where the two, psychology and spirituality, converge. And up to this point, one can be religious, you can be spiritual, you can even be fruitful, and still not be healed or vice versa. Anybody relate to that? You know what I'm talking about? So the wall is the place where these parts of us converge. Up to this point, one can be religious, spiritual, or fruitful, and still not be healed. You can be going through life, going through the motions, even seeing good fruit. It's the John 15 thing that Jesus talks about, how I'm in the vine, my father, I'm the vine, my father's the branches, but every branch that bears fruit, God prunes. Why? Because he knows you have more potential. And in his love, he will not allow us to keep going along those pathways unchallenged without looking at the areas where we have built up false illusions about ourselves, about who he is, about our spiritual journey. But experience the wall is both frightening and unpredictable. For some, it's going to require a lengthy time. For some, you're going to be staring at that wall, taking it down rock by rock by rock by rock. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You can't wish it wasn't there. At some point in your spiritual life, you're going to have to dismantle that wall through the power of the Holy Spirit, rock by rock by rock, in order to get to freedom on the other side. Others will move through it rather quickly, and others will encounter the wall repeatedly at different levels. As God's moving you into a kind of a different level of understanding and relating to him, you may face this several times, and you've got to make the choice. Am I going to go through the wall, through the pain, deal with it, and find healing, or am I going to just let it stand and stop right there? Not everyone will go through it. Some stop or get stuck at earlier stages, never get to the wall, Others decide at the wall to return to an earlier stage. Boy, it just felt better. I'm just going to pretend like it's not there, but I know what to do, so I'm going to keep doing all these other things I know at this point. And still others get stuck in front of the wall, not really wanting to submit to what God has in their lives. Are you at the wall? Have you been at the wall? These are choices that we have to make if we want to press on into spiritual maturity. God will lead you to that place, and in his love, he has a way through it. God knows exactly where you are on the map. He's not lost you in that process, and he knows exactly what you need because he's on a rescue mission for you. 
He knows what you need, and he will not leave us in our addictions, our codependency. He will not leave us in our spiritual doubt. He will not leave us in places of family confusion and dysfunction. He's not going to leave us in those places where we believe we're okay, but really everybody else can see all the things that are going on in our lives. He's not going to leave us there. He's on a rescue mission for all who are lost, not just in that point of meeting the Savior and finding salvation, but for those who are spiritually disoriented and lost in their journey. God wants to help us dismantle the wall. So Paul talks about some spiritual markers of maturity. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, the whatever gains to me I count as loss. And it all starts with this hunger and this desire that he expresses. I want to know Christ. When the thing that gets you through the wall, that gives you the motivation to take it apart brick by brick by brick, stone by stone by stone, until you walk through it to freedom and to life on the other side, which, by the way, in the latter stages of spiritual growth, it still looks like love God, love others, and serve. There's nothing wrong with that. It has to do with the motivation and our will meeting God's will in that, coming to a fresh understanding of his love for me that then motivates me to move beyond me in that process, in that process. So the the deepening hunger and desire, when I know I'm maturing in Christ, I will have a deepening desire for more of God. My heart is not going to be satisfied and content with just staying on the periphery of a relationship saying, you know what, I enjoy all the benefits of the relationship. As long as it feels good for me, I'm in. But the mark of a maturing relationship is when it's like, you know what? I'm with you thick or thin, good or bad. I want to know you in every circumstance or situation of life. I want to know you. And that's what Paul is saying. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus. So it begins with that deepening hunger desire. It moves toward abandonment. Everything else is worthless compared to knowing you, Jesus. That abandonment is like, I've lost everything. It's garbage. Nothing that I think is important about this life really is, except for knowing you. Knowing you. Is that your heart? It moves from abandonment to sanctification. This word that is, that is you know, huge and intimidating, but just literally means to be set apart. Things that are set apart for use set apart for the purpose in which it was designed. I have um, like a pen and a cup, a couple of ordinary objects, okay? This cup can be sanctified. Not in a spiritual sense, it's not real. (laughs) But I sanctify this cup when I set it apart for its original use. If I tried to take this cup, turn it upside down, which I won't do because it has tea in it, and use it as a hat, it is not sanctified for that use, It's not set apart for that purpose. That's not the purpose for which it's designed. But when I take this cup and I drink from this cup, when I fill this cup with what it's intended to hold, this cup becomes sanctified or set apart for the purpose in which it's intended. Does that make sense? I could take this pen. I could say, you know what? I could use this for a lot of things. I could stick it in a hole that needs to be filled. I could, you know, use it as a place marker. That's not the purpose for which this pen was designed. This pen fulfills its purpose when I take it off, take the lid off, and I begin to write for it. Now this pen is set apart for the purpose in which it was intended. So when you and I are sanctified in our spiritual lives, what is the purpose for which we have been set apart? What is the purpose for which we have been designed and intended to operate? It's to be holy. To be set apart for the purposes and the designs and the plans that God has purposed for us from the beginning of creation. The things that he has ordained every day of our life was ordained and written in his book before there was one, as Psalm 139 says. What is the purpose that God has for your life? And are we living that? Jesus said, you're to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. In 1 Peter, it talks about, we are to be perfect, be holy even as my Father. For this you were called, to this you were called, to be holy, to be set apart for the purposes of God. And that is sanctification. But sanctification is also hard work. When I was five years old, I had a deep conviction that I was a sinner. 
Now, not much in my life had happened at that point up to age five, but I had a night or after a service, I just was so overcome by my awareness of where my heart really was. And I knew that I needed Jesus. And so I knelt at an altar and I prayed by myself that God would, God would fill my life, that he would take over my life. Now at that moment, I became a daughter of God. At that moment of revelation and conversion, I became a daughter of God. But as one author talks about, he said, conversions aren't really one event. Conversions are a lifelong process. It's a process of a series of conversions that take place all through a person's life. There's a process. Now, imagine if you had a skin cancer. One of my friends talked about how, her, how she had a skin cancer, her dad had a skin cancer. And for her, it was a process of, I visit a dermatologist, he takes something and, you know, surgically removes that little bit of skin cancer, and it was one and done, bandage it up, heal up, go on my way, I'm done. Skin cancer over. But for her dad, who had a place on his face, they had to go back seven times. Same place, same issue, seven times to take a layer off, bandage it up, let it heal, test the margins, still didn't get it all. Go back, do it again, bandage it up, heal it, test the margins, still not clear. And seven times had to repeat the process going a little deeper, a little wider each time, until that skin cancer was completely gone. And that's the picture of our life of faith. When we place our trust in Jesus, the the work of, of becoming like him begins at that point. We are made right with God on the basis of our faith in Christ Jesus, not of our works. On the basis of faith in Christ Jesus, we become a child of God at that moment when we recognize and we come alive to his spirit and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. But the process of becoming like him, the 40 years in my life since that time as a five-year-old that I knelt at an altar so aware of my sin and said, Jesus, I want to be yours. That 40 years since has been a series of conversions in my life as God is transforming me into his likeness. That's what the process of sanctification looks like when we're becoming changed over time, a series of deaths, a series of conversions so that we can identify with Christ. And Paul says, I want to identify with Christ in three ways. In the power of his resurrection, that's the mountaintop experience. I want to identify with Christ in participation in his sufferings. That's the real life pain that you and I face. And the word participation there is actually the word koinonia, which means when we come together with him in that, when we identify with God in our pain, in our struggle, we actually join this fellowship with him. There is sweet friendship that we gain with Jesus in our suffering that allows us to know him in a way that we would not have known him otherwise. There is purpose in that. I want to know him in the power of the resurrection, participation of his suffering, and I need to become like him even in death because only those series of deaths in my life will bring about conformity to his image, conformity to his image. Oswald Chambers uh, had an, uh, in August 27th, you can look this up, August 27th, there was a devotional called Living Your Theology. Oswald Chambers was alive 100 years ago. So but you can go online, My Utmost for His Highest, and there's just such rich daily little content. If you just need something a little bit every day, daily discipleship, this is a great place to start. But I knew I was going to be speaking on this, and this just really stood out to me last month as I read this. He said, Beware of not acting upon what you see in your mountains, moments on the mountaintop with God. Beware of not acting upon what you see in your moments on the mountaintop with God. If you do not obey the light, it will turn to darkness. The moment you forsake the matter of sanctification or neglect anything else on which God has given you his light, your spiritual life begins to disintegrate within you. The most difficult person to deal with is the person who has the prideful self-satisfaction of a past experience but is not working that experience out in his everyday life. If you say you are sanctified, show it. The experience must be so genuine that it shows in your life. Your theology must work itself out, exhibiting itself in your most common everyday relationships. You may know all about the doctrine of sanctification, but are you working it out in the everyday issues of your life? 
Every detail of your life, whether physical, moral, or spiritual, is to be judged and measured, not by my standard, but by the standard of the atonement by the cross of Christ. I become like him when I identify with his finished work on the cross, and I become like him. And that leads me to humility and surrender. That's why Paul could say in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this, or that I've already arrived. I don't have it all together, Paul says. I haven't arrived. I haven't obtained all this. I've still got more to do. That's a level of humility when we see God for who he is and we know what, what he can do in and through us, then we realize where we fall short. And it's easy to say, God, I surrender. I surrender. That's when our will meets his will face to face. It's what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, and he talked about poetry replaces grammar, gospel replaces law, longing transforms obedience as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. Grammar, law, obedience, those are the fundamental elementary things. Those are the basic things we can get right. But what about the poetry that replaces grammar? What about the gospel the awareness of the good news of Christ that replaces just mundane obedience. The longing that replaces obedience, that transforms it. And that process happens as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. It's slow, it's gradual, it's patient work. So as the worship team comes and as we close, I just want to give you a couple of quick reminders for the journey from the remainder of Philippians 3, verse, verses 12 through 17. And by the way, these are good reminders. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never made a summit. Maybe you have not even decided that you want to participate in a life of faith in Jesus. And you haven't made that commitment. These reminders are as good for you today as they are for someone who's summited many times and is still trying to find the motivation to do it again. So all of these apply. So these are good reminders for our journey and the first one is simply press on. That is the attitude we have to have in Christ Jesus. We press on. We press on by remembering the goal. I am living an eternal life now. You, we are living an eternal life now. The eternal life of, that I'm living right now is a part I can see, but what I'm doing now is preparing me for the eternal life that I can't see. I am living eternity now. We are living eternity now. That's the goal. It's, that's the goal. So we forget what is behind. We don't just forget the stuff that's bad, the hardships, the things that we'd rather just lay aside and never uncover, never examine again. We lay aside the bad, and as Paul writes about here, we also lay aside the good, the things that we consider to be gains. Yes, you may have reached Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, you may have summited whatever mountain God has you on. But that's not the only goal. That is not the goal of our faith. So we forget what's behind, good or bad. But I've been hurt. I've been hurt. I'm not sure if I want to climb. Or I've been discouraged. I'm looking at the mountain in front of me, and I'm not even sure that I have what it takes to climb. Press on. Press on. I've already summited before. Why do I need to go back again? Press on. Press on, forgets what, what's behind. And then he says, make the effort, strain forward. It's the, the image of a runner who's reaching to get just a, a, a piece of his body across the finish line so that he can win the race. The ones, you know, when you watch the runners go, they, at the end, they just lunge forward because they're trying to get a nose, a chest, anything ahead of the line so that they can win the race. They strain toward what's ahead. So we've got to make the effort. That deals with our excuses of, I don't want to. I'm not sure I want to. Strain forward. Press on. Or maybe you need to be aware that others need you to show the way. Maybe you're part of a relay team, and they need you to do your part. Strain forward. Pass off that baton. Keep making the effort. Maybe you feel like, I like where I am now. <laughs> My friends are here. My friends don't really want to summit. They, they like the view at base camp. But what is God calling you to do? It's not enough to have a group of friends who are content staying in the same place and never growing, never being transformed, never being challenged. I mean, come on. Let's get going. Let's get going. Let's see what else. You be the person among your, your friend group that moves beyond 
and takes the first step forward because other people are waiting to follow you. Other people may long but not know how to, and somebody needs to take a step forward. Make the effort, strain forward, and persevere. To persevere is to try or to continue to try in the face of difficulty. Even if you're not sure you can make it, we persevere. We keep going. That's why he talks about in in verses 13 and 14 how he presses on. I don't consider myself to have yet laid hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind. I strain toward what's ahead, and I press on toward the goal. I press on toward the goal. We've got to persevere. But my friends aren't going to come with me. Press on. I'm weary. Press on. Rest with Jesus. And then press on. Stay focused on the goal. Is it worth it? Yes. The goal is the heavenward call that God has for each of us. So we've got to stay focused. And then in verse 16, he says, we need to maintain. We need to live up to what we've already obtained. In other words, don't give up any ground. Not only make progress, but don't give up ground. You need to maintain progress all throughout your life. We need to see that continual move forward. And then he said in verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. We need to link up. We need to link up with one another. When we are hooked on, like that carabiner that attaches to the ropes, and you see that other person climbing ahead of you, when you link up with others, it hooks you in. It provides safety. If you fall, it's going to catch you. You've got an anchor point that's going to be safety for you as you climb. It provides a way for others to help you. It provides a way for you to rest in that journey so that you can make the summit. So link up with others and find some spiritual role models and mentors so that help you keep growing. Find those people that will help you celebrate when you feel exhausted. Find those others that are going to meet you on the descent back at base camp and have some warm food and some water and a nice place for you to sleep. People that have already made the summit before are waiting for you at base camp to help provision you and get you going again. You need other people. Some of the best spiritual mentors in my life have not been the flashiest or the most successful or um, anyone that outwardly would capture any attention. One of my Uh, most precious mentors is a woman who has been married for 40 years to a man who has practically disowned her. She became a Christian in her first year of their marriage, and at that point he turned his back. So they're they're still in a marriage, but he's walked away from that. She's still married to him. She has physical disabilities. She is chronically ill, and I've never met a more mature, more mature, more lovely more gentle, more Christ-like woman than that woman who can push through and sacrifice and keep saying yes to her commitments every day. That's the person that I want to find. Ecclesiastes said the battle's not given to the swift or the strong. The race is not given to the swift or the strong. It's the people that learn how to keep pressing on in that. You press on, you press on, you press on. So when you're looking for a mentor, don't look for the perfect example, shining example. That may or may not be the person you need to follow right now in this season. You may need to learn the path of humility that comes from observing the quiet, tender, sanctified life of somebody else who's walked through hardship. There's something to learn. There's more for you. There's more for others. Hosea 6.3 says, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming rains in the early spring. In other words, as we press on, there's something for us, that refreshing that comes, that Hosea talks about, the refreshing of dawn, the refreshing of an early spring rain. We press on to know the Lord. We press on. Let's stand together. stand together. One of the very last things that Jesus did with his disciples before he ascended, he went up to another mountain. It's the mountain that he led them to in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And they worshiped him there, even though some doubted, the passage says. But then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go, get back down off the mountain, and make disciples. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe and obey everything I've commanded. And then there's this promise, and surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. God is with us. There is more of him to experience. Oh, that we might know the Lord, that we might press on to know him. Why do we return? Why do we summit again? Because you know what? There's a commission that needs to be fulfilled. There are others who are waiting on our example of pursuit to be able to find. There are families, there are generations, there are strongholds that have to be broken because we need to move forward. And it will only come as we say yes to that. And we do have the promise of his presence. Lord, we thank you so much for the the refreshing of your word. Lord, that guides us and leads us in all truth and wisdom. Lord, we become so disoriented when we follow our own path, when we take control of our lives, or when we're self-willed and we we think, God, we've got this. I can do it. I know the way. I can, I've been there before, and we become self-reliant. But, Lord, we need you. Lord, we are so dependent upon you and your transforming work in our lives. Lord, lead us and guide us. Lead us and guide us. Lord, give us a desire, a burning desire, a zeal, and a passion for you that would cause us to press into you, to press our pain into your heart, to press ourselves into your presence. Lord, to come near with boldness and with our request. Lord, to obtain grace. Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name. You can respond in one of a few ways. You can sit quietly and think through the response questions that are in your listening guide or on the screen. You can respond in communion. You can respond in prayer. Maybe you need to visit someone that's standing over to one of the sides up in the balcony that are available to pray with you. But take a moment and think about what is the one step that I need to take this week? Not for my whole journey, but what is the one thing I need to do today or this week so that I can live and follow after Jesus? What is that thing? Let's take a few minutes to think about that and to respond, to listen for what God would say. We'll worship, receive communion, pray, and be dismissed.